After marking hymn number 32, as Brother Harold asked us to do, I would invite us to give some additional thought to this series of lessons on the subject of, in fact, Bible translations. In fact, as we approach the eighth installment or eighth edition of that particular series, we've had the opportunity to make consideration or at least be reminded of some matters that in many ways have in some sense been penetrating and others have been comforting. But all the while, we have at least visited the matter and the issues surrounding the subject of translation. And so tonight, as we give some more thought to that, here are some of the things that we at least have looked at along the way in our study. In particular, we asserted the need for translation. How vital and useful it is for all those individuals who are not able to read the original language, who are not thoroughly conversant with it, and thus, in that position in which you and I would in fact reside, we in fact can read the Bible or the Holy Word of God in a language that you and I can understand. And what a marvelous blessing indeed that is. And in addition to thinking along those lines, we did, however, look at the opposite side of that coin, that the matter of translation does place a great responsibility upon those who are taking care of it to make sure that they handle it rightly. And so that passage that we use for the lesson text this evening closed by saying to handle the Word of God rightly. And how needful that always is. So much so that in our particular considerations, we've looked at all that host of particular ones. We looked at a few matters relating to each one. Made the rather resounding statement that in some instances we wouldn't recommend them, that we would not in fact lift them to be those on which we would so easily recommend the novice, for instance, would study. But we did, however, notice that there were many on that list, or not on that list, that we had yet to give some attention to and some thoughts, in fact, regarding. Tonight, as we begin this particular lesson, the eighth one in the series, I thought we would look at that particular set of ideals that have been present really in many of the things there and in some ways will summarize some of what we have learned in regard to them and set the readiness for pushing onward in, in what in fact comes before us next. It is with that in mind that I thought it might be interesting to take a look. Hmm. And I can already see that isn't at all what I had in mind. <laughs> This is one of those occasions when, as a speaker, one must try to describe as nearly as one can. Those particular things appear perfectly fine when I pulled it up because I checked it. I was a fearful that that might take place, and it got me anyway. What I wanted for each of us to look at, and that's not going to be it, but what I wanted us to at least see was a part of the labor that went into and was set before those particular translators. And I thought we first would give at least a brief realization to the, an Old Testament passage and then turn our attention to a New Testament one as well. When you come to that rather lengthy presentation about the third line down on that slide, that was intended to be written in Hebrew text. And my computer does have a Hebrew true text font on it. And it appeared fine there and even when I copied it. But now it doesn't. So my, my apologies for that. That was supposed to be Jeremiah 1 verse number 9 as it would appear in the original Hebrew text. What a person who was able to read Hebrew would say, would in fact have seen. 
Now, as you look at it, again, please appreciate, that's just a string of nonsensical English characters. It is not the Hebrew passage, and it's not the Hebrew rendering. But as one would perhaps think about what it could have been, one would thus perhaps note the following. It would have appeared with spaces present. In other words, those who wrote that Old Testament were very meticulous and very careful about utilizing proper spaces between the words as the Holy Spirit had delivered it. And you'll also notice a few other things about that passage or text if, if you are in fact in a position to have access to it. It is in fact read very differently than our English. It is read right to left. You start on that side of the page and read in the opposite direction to what you and I would read in English. So those on Hebrew start at the right-hand side of the page and read back to the left. In fact, that passage was supposed to, in fact, have all that in it. I, I read it. In fact, I copied it in from right to left. And in fact, it was exactly that Hebrew passage in Jeremiah 1 verse 9. Now that passage in English would, of course, read as follows. Then the Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. All of that, the thrust, the verbs, the various parts of speech, all were present in what should have been written on one line that was really only stretching from, again, the right over to the left, just one line in Hebrew. Interesting then, as one gives thought to what would have been required for a person to have translated that, it would thus have required that this person be very knowledgeable of the Hebrew so that he would know what the various words meant, what the structure and order of the sentence would have conveyed. But he would also have needed, for instance, to be very conversant with English to know how to translate in a proper fashion and to convey the right ordering and sentence structure for the words even in the English sense. So truly, it's not too surprising that those who are in the business of translation have to be very thoroughly acquainted with languages, how the word structure works, and how one translates it rightly into the desired particular language. As you again look at that, we're going to encounter a similar problem also with the New Testament one, I can now see. Looking a bit further, one might now ask, how do things work in the New Testament? Now, of course, the language is Greek, and thankfully we might well at least imagine it still is read from left to right. So it is read in the same way that you and I would typically read English. Some comments might also be in order. Many of the earliest unshields and various manuscripts actually had the original Greek text of the New Testament presented in all capital letters and without spaces. The words were just strung together pretty much like that one, where, again, that was intended to be all capital Greek letters, but you'll notice it's capital English letters with other various English symbols thrown into it. You can imagine what an interesting set of circumstances it would then provide to attempt to translate that. Again, that was supposed to be John 1 verse 1 which that opening phrase and opening verse in the book of John reminds us of the eternality and greatness, of course, of both God and the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As all of that was portrayed in that particular passage, it soon, in the years that followed, it became to be very, rather easily realized that if there were spaces between the particular words 
and that if also lowercase words or letters were utilized, that might have some very distinct advantages. And thus, one came to appreciate that those who translated it would put it in that very way. This was supposed to have been the third example, and none of them have come through. Perhaps if I can try with some effort, hopefully, by next Sunday night, it won't fit into the lesson as nicely, but at least I'd like you to see, if, if I might, what that Greek text would have appeared like, both in all capitals, as well as once the particular spaces and, and, and lowercase letters were used. This particular passage are two, is two verses, or was intended to be two verses from the book of Galatians. If we had been able to see that in the Greek we would have seen three rather nicely positioned lines with spaces between the letters, or between the words, and the letters would have been lowercase in character. And all the while, we would have at least been able to recognize, I think, a few of the words at least that would have appeared. For instance, Jesus, or the name Jesus, I think you and I would be able to say that at least looks like it might have been that word. And the word Christ, I think we would have agreed we could have identified. And that particular verse again reads, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And it was my hope, in fact, that as we looked at, for instance, that passage, not only might we have been able to identify at least a few of the words in it, but also noted the thrust of the verb, say, to baptize as it occurred and what structure did it have. And what was the thrust and meaning behind Paul's use of it? It is to be noted even in that, you can see there's B-A-P-T-I and C-R-I-S-T-O. And you, you can get some feeling that whatever that computer did to put this there in failing to present it in Greek, it seemed to present some transliteration of it in at least some kind of English. As you give thought to it, again, please don't think that's Greek. Again, it's just some combobulated English presentation. If I can pull that together, I'll try to see if I can get that for next Sunday night. So again, my apologies in regard to all three of those examples. If we give some thought, though, to at least a conclusion or two that might come from them, we're now in a position of at least seeing, imagining, maybe as much as anything, that those who had this Greek text in front of them and were thus desirous of producing a reliable English component to it or an English translation of it, were thus in a position to recognize the following. There wasn't just a single manuscript available. In fact, as you'll notice there, there are thousands of them. In fact, as we have often noted in, in, an, in an earlier lesson a few months ago, the text of the Holy Scriptures is by far the most resoundingly attested document from the ancient world. Some of those other documents that our students in, say, literature courses are sometimes with less than great excitement asked to read and study, things like the ancient writers of Homer, the ancient writers of some of those other well-known matters, there are far, far fewer copies and manuscripts of them than there are of the ancient text of the Bible. Thousands of these copies, and they often powerfully give attestation to the correctness of the others because they read the same way. 
It's no wonder that as we've noted also, that gives us a great appreciation of the trustworthiness of those original documents and that they are presenting in powerful declaration the Word of God. And with regard to that, might we however quickly note that although those particular manuscripts in the overwhelming majority of cases agree so powerfully and wonderfully, that's not to say that there aren't some differences. One manuscript might read a particular text or passage in one way, and another one might read it in a slightly different way. For instance, if one, say, had this particular verse with, oh, 20 particular words in it, maybe 18 or 19 of them are in perfect harmony, including tenses, location of prepositions, and everything else, but there might be a slight difference in the tense of the verbs between a couple of the words. Or there might be a slight change in maybe an entire word that's used. At that point, one now has to give some thought to what does that difference mean? What's the appreciation in regard to the origin of those manuscripts, perhaps? What might have taken place over the years as the copyist maybe, in fact, made a slight mistake in terms of making one copy in that particular matter of manuscript. I say all that to point out some of these things. Certainly then, when those who are in the business of translation have at their disposal a number of these well-attested manuscripts and they're in a position of wanting to make the most reliable or the best translation that they can make, they certainly would give some thought to what each one is saying, perhaps the age of the manuscript if possible, perhaps the nature of the context and what bearing that might have on perhaps the better word of choice. But all that is to in fact say this, there certainly would be a need for careful analysis. There would be a need for diligent study and consideration to make certain that one handled that sacred text rightly. And we can be very thankful that there have, are, of course, those groups or individuals who have attempted to be very meticulous and who have attempted to be very thorough in their choice of words and their handling of the text and in their presentation of what we would recognize as a reliable or a faithful re recognition of the sacred text of the Bible. I would point out, too, that one of the things that you and I would lift so high as a good point, not only in matters of translation, but also as we give our thoughts to Bible study, is certainly one wouldn't wish if there was any consideration of choice in words to use a word that would make a verse appear to contradict with another one. And so as these have taken their efforts toward that end and goal, maybe one final thought. It is thus a very challenging matter of responsibility, isn't it? To be entrusted with the matter of producing a translation. Those who made the first translation to the Old Testament in something like what we might call a Septuagint, for instance. Or others who, of course, through the centuries have translated the New Testament. We have noted some instances over the last few weeks when the best choices weren't made when there were things that could have been done differently and better. But we, we might be quick to say, as you give thought to some of those translations that we have looked at, it certainly hasn't been my intent. And you might notice we usually looked at but one very small sampling out of the entirety of all the verses that were present in the, in the Bible. For instance, with the NIV, I think we looked at four verses total. 
And with respect to some of the others, we looked at even less. But our goal was to merely give thought to the understanding. There are many verses, for instance, in those translations that may well have been handled in a good way, that may have been handled in a very thoughtful manner and even with a meticulous character. And we might well say that even in the translations we're about to consider, it is not to say that they are perfect. There are no perfect translations. There were particular choices that were made with regard to words. There were choices made with regard to, for instance, the manuscripts upon which the primary basis was made. And in some instances, it wasn't the best choice. Certainly, we can be very thankful and very appreciative for the translations. Our goal has been, though, to note some of the more prominent issues and problems. I thought that as we push this matter a bit forward tonight and in the lessons yet to come, not only will we look at some of, some of those examples in the actual Hebrew and Greek passages and texts, but I thought we might want to look at at least a presentation of two more verses found in the New Testament. In so doing, first of all, might we give thought to Galatians 1.22. As we look at that passage, we've already at least stated that some of the translations didn't do the best job that might have been done with certain passages or verses. Others with that particular passage or verse may have done a far better job. In Galatians 1.22, I have tried to write at least here, and you can already see the fourth example also suffers from the same limitation the ones did before. I had that written in Greek at that point about the middle part of the passage and then the translations that we were going to consider I chose to, to use in the verses that followed. That particular verse in the King James translation reads as follows, "...and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ." And that passage seems relatively brief and it also seems relatively easy for you and me to understand. Now, without that Greek text above it, some of the comparisons are not going to be as easy for, for, for you to appreciate with me. But at least we were going to be able to see some of the correspondence between the words that were there in Greek and the way that those words were translated in that particular translation at least. Here at the bottom, look at the way the ASV, the American Standard Translation, renders that same verse. And I was still unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. It's easy to see a rather marked similarity. You can, for instance, notice the word Christ serves as a noun in both verses, as the object of that prepositional phrase. You can see there's the word unknown that occurs also as a descriptive of, of the person of Paul. We can also notice the word churches as plural, and it's identified as the churches of Judea. You will notice that there is one additional word in the, in the American Standard. It's that fourth word, the word still, does not occur in the previous one. As you take a look at all of that, let's look at a few additional translations as well and just gain some flavor for the way in which these read. Here is the New American Standard Bible, the very top one on this page, and it reads... And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. We again can readily see a rather powerful degree of harmony between that and the two we just looked at. In fact, we notice the word Christ is still easily identified as a noun. 
We can also appreciate that the word unknown still identifies the character and person of Paul. We can also notice the word churches is again plural, and even that phrase of Judea identifies where the location was of these churches to which Paul had reference. Now for the Good News Bible. Let's look at the second one listed on that slide, please. All this time, the members of the Christian churches in Judea did not know me personally. And that one again seems to read reasonably differently. You'll notice that the idea, at least in part, seems to be reasonably conveyed in some ways. We notice, however, that the word Christ has been changed to an adjective this time. And you'll notice it is now used to modify the word churches, which was not the case directly in the other previous three examples. We also notice the word members now directly occurs when it wasn't present in the previous ones. And we also see that phrase all this time. There appear to be a number of differences. There appear to be some critical things that are shown to be different. As we give thought to what that difference is, might we again remember the basis for the Good News Bible was a completely different translation philosophy. Whereas those others to which we've considered, the ones I've just previously listed, quite often made the strong note that they operated on that word-for-word -word idea. The basis for the good news was, remember, just dynamic equivalence. What in the translator's mind presented the same idea, though the same words weren't used at all, whether they were in the same order or not. And we noted the problem that that kind of philosophy had in every instance we saw it. And may I submit to you that we probably would call at least fair parts of this one into question. The injection of words that were not there in Greek. The changing of the order of the sentence so that the modifiers now modify different words. The notion of the phrases that are no longer in any sense ordered the same way they were before. But to say all of that is to challenge us to appreciate then the translation philosophy is a very critical matter, isn't it? What did these people want and try to do? What was their guiding philosophy and their guiding premise? If it was merely an attempt to make things equivalent so that they were interpreting it, that is dangerous. It was then and it is now. But at least those who operated on the premise of a word-for-word -word basis, we might well wish to give them serious reflection and serious consideration. Maybe another example. This one taken from Romans 10, verse number 10. Yet for the fifth time, you can see that what was supposed to be in Greek is just a discombobulated English arrangement of letters and characters. That was, of course, supposed to present to us what that Greek text looked like. And let me again apologize for that not having in it that which I was hopeful that we would be able to see this evening. But at least the King James below it would read like this. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. A text that you and I have more than once considered, and we have in fact listed it as a powerful arrangement in Paul's discussion of the plan of salvation. Consider the American Standard translation of the same. And let's see if we can't make comparison of some matters like we did before. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Are there any differences at all between these two? 
In this instance, there are none. We see that every word, in fact, appears as the same. It's in the same order, same tense, same of every particular consideration that one would wish to make with regard to the two passages. So here's an example when those particular manuscripts on which these matters were based were translated in exactly the same fashion between one of these translations and the other one. However, others have something that reads differently. Here's the NIV, for example. At the top one, it reads as follows. For it is with you, I'm sorry, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And I might ask you, if you have that one in mind, to think back to the way the others were written. First of all, as we revisit the previous... We notice that the word heart again occupied the position of a noun. And we notice that following it, the word believeth was in a tense that certainly wasn't past tense. But rather it was in a, tent, in a tense that not only operated with a present thrust in character, but it had a force of action that went along with it. But you'll notice the object of it was a portion of leading to righteousness. It wasn't as if the righteousness was part and parcel of proceeding with it. It was a part of that which led to them. That verb or that preposition unto utilized in both of these two. And you'll notice the same thing had reference to the matter of salvation, didn't it? Furthermore, with regard to mouth, it too was a noun and so was the word confession. Now giving thought again to the way the NIV rendered it. You can see that with your heart, we see an interesting correspondence, a slight choice of difference that related to their appearance. The same thing was true with the word mouth. But we see that with your heart, that you believe and are justified. And we notice that something is a bit different about the choice of the tenses that went along with them. Here it's clear you believe, present tense and are justified, bringing with it the thought that this issue that surrounds that matter is occurring at that moment. It's in essence stated in such a way it's not unto anything. Justification, salvation if you please, presented itself at the time that one believed, at the time that one confessed if you will, and that nothing beyond that was in the vein of what the tense of the verb indicated or even the preposition. Is that change significant? Does it matter? Well, you and I might look at maybe another translation. Here's another one that we will look at in the weeks to come, the English Standard Version, the ESV. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Now that one has a strong harmony with the NIV, doesn't it? in terms of the verb tenses, and in terms of the message that is so strongly presented. In fact, these two seem to work far better in harmony, and the previous two that we looked at, of course, seem to go hand in hand. But there's nonetheless distinctions, aren't there? Perhaps one more, the NASB, is it also tackles this same passage. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You'll notice that this translation does again a far better job than those previous two on that same one at recognizing by use of the word resulting 
that these are operative unto something yet. They, in essence, are a part of that which results in that which is yet to take place more fully. At least in that regard, we would claim the NASB seems to do a better job than either the ESV, or uh, at least on this instance in the NIV, at remaining more true to that which was the original Greek text. I might use that example to say this. With regard thus to a particular translation, you and I notice that there are going to be differences in the way that various verses are rendered. And there's going to be sometimes differences that are reasonably minor. And on other occasions, there will be differences that are rather significant. As we give thought to especially those that would fall in that category of significant, those, of course, could easily thus be said to lead us to some of these comments. We certainly would be happy to state, wouldn't we, that any mistake in regard to a translation that is not faithful to the original Greek or Hebrew, for example, that's not an ideal situation. And it's not a situation we would lift as the perfect one. But nonetheless, in light of all of that, there are some particular matters that are more serious than others. A translation that, for instance, tampers with the deity of Christ. In some way, withholding from the Christ the reverence that He deserves, either in heaven or while on earth. Or a translation that withholds the nature of, say, what proper worship is or tampers with it. Those would be very serious issues, wouldn't they? Because one's entrance into heaven depends upon that. Furthermore, those who do injustice to the plan of salvation, tampering with belief or repentance or confession or baptism and the order in which the Holy Scriptures present that, those again would be indeed very serious kinds of issues in translation. And those, again, could very well aid in the dooming of a particular soul eternally. Thus, when one comes to consider various matters in translation, we might say that there seems to then be a great difference between a situation or a consideration like that and one in which, say, the age of an Old Testament king isn't listed correctly. Was he 8 years old or 18 years old? Well, now we aren't happy with even that kind of distinction, but that kind of mistake does not fall on the same plane and is not at the same level, is it, that a mistake with regard to the plan of salvation or say what is to be done in proper worship in the church. And so those that say handle Ephesians 5.19 and explicitly put a mechanical instrument in it when the Greek text didn't have it, or those that in fact tamper with a collection in some way as if it can occur on a Saturday or a Friday or any day of the week or the partaking of the Lord's Supper, those are serious issues. And one should be well aware of any translation that would have that kind of presentation in it. Perhaps one final set of things. As you look at the bottom, those things that I've at least briefly listed, and certainly those aren't exhaustive lists, but there are many translations, especially from the Schofield Bible onward, that seem to have found it their duty to insert as much premillennialism in it as they possibly can. Making the references to the kingdom in many instances premillennial, making references to Christ's second coming as thoroughly premillennial, 
making references to the state of earth at some future time as premillennial. And again, that is a serious issue because, again, it occurs so often in the New Testament. On average, one verse out of every 25 makes statements about the second coming of Christ. And so if one is making that kind of statement that often and that many times and misleading individuals to think that salvation in part may be related to the doctrine of premillennialism, that again is a very serious problem and a very serious issue. What I would hope that we shall be able to do in the weeks that are yet to come is to use some of the ideas with the Hebrew and Greek hopefully corrected and shown next week in which we're going to be able to see some of these matters. As these differences in translation are seen, and that will even be true with regard to that King James translation, we will find that there are things, as we've often done, that must call various prescriptions, even in that translation in question. We will find that we too must be rather careful even reading it along with some other translations to assist us, perhaps being more useful and careful with a concordance or even perhaps some other Bible dictionary. But my hope tonight was for us to at least have a mindset ready to look into what some of those differences are and to not be alarmed when we ought not be alarmed, but to be alarmed when alarm should in fact be seen and ready. As we start to look at these next week, those that are to come are some of those we've looked at tonight. The ESV, the King James Version, the New King James Version. We will look at the American Standard Version and try to see, in all honesty, what can we say about them, what might be noble and noteworthy, but what also might be worthy of being questioned even in regard to some of the things that they present. It is true, though, that tonight we have at least in the course of the lesson made this point. The Word of God is available to us. As you and I are careful students of the Word of God, making use of those particular aids and resources to which we have access, we can feel confident and very thoroughly reliable that you and I can have access to and can know the Word of God and how thankful we can be for that blessing. Tonight, where does your life and mine stand with respect to that Word of God? Does it have the proper place in our life? Have we given it short shrift far too often? Have we in fact so often neglected or ignored it and have just taken someone's word for what it supposedly says? There are multitudes of individuals around this world who are in a very non-ideal situation because of that. They perhaps have listened to what some man has said, what some group of people have told them the Bible says when all along that group of people was either honestly or dishonestly misled because they did not proclaim that which God's Word proclaims. And yet as individuals, somewhat innocently perhaps, but somewhat not so innocently, followed what they were told the Bible said, they have left this world and entered eternity not obedient to the precious Word of God. Thankfully, may we ever with a mindset of careful diligence and careful earnestness approach the beauty of God's Word and do so under the banner again of 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. How good a workman are you and I tonight? Are we laboring in such a way that perhaps on our back God could say, an approved workman in my kingdom. 
Or would he, in fact, perhaps with shame, have to say, an unapproved workman, in fact, not even in my kingdom. Tonight, if you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, it would be our desire to assist you in whatever public way we might. If you've never obeyed the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior initially, why not tonight? The Word of God does proclaim you must hear the Word of the Lord, Mark 4.24. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8.24. You must repent of the sins in your life, that which has separated you and God, Luke 13.3. You must confess in a verbal way the nature of Jesus as the Son of God, following that dictate of 1 John 4.15. And then you must be baptized for the remission of your sins under the banner of Acts 2.38. If tonight we could assist you with that, the baptismal waters are ready, the angels in heaven are more than excited to rejoice with your obedience. If you have become a member of the body of Christ and have known and tasted the goodness associated with it, Hebrews 6 verse 4, but you have for some reason, maybe even an excuse, lost sight of the path that was before you, Maybe in a very gradual and slow way, the Bible came to have very little meaning to you. Make that right with God tonight. He sent His Son that He might enjoy relationship with you, that you might be reconciled to Him. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. If tonight we could pray on your behalf, we would be more than delighted to do that. We would only ask you let us know in what way we might do so while together we stand and while we sing.